0: Hi, Adam here. Just a quick content warning. This episode contains strong language and describes events that some may find disturbing, including murder and rape. Gone Fishing, Part 4. The Forest.
1: It's Sunday, June 1992. A middle-aged couple are taking their two dogs for a walk near Murawai Golf Club on Auckland's west coast. It's a pine forest, and they're collecting cones as they go. After three-quarters of an hour, they've filled a couple of bags of cones and head back to the Land Rover. They're wading through knee-high grass in a small clearing when they realise they're walking on bones. The man assumes it's a sheep. He's come across others in the forest before. But when he looks closer, he sees a spine. He moves some grass with his boot, and there's a skull. He calls his wife over, and she agrees. The bones look human. She ties a handkerchief to a nearby sapling as a marker and they get the dogs back to the car. The forensic pathologist who inspects the skeleton the next day notes that it is lying on its left side in the fetal position. When he assembles the bones in the Auckland Hospital mortuary, they're almost all there. Apart from the tongue bone, a few finger and toe bones and a single tooth. He says the skeleton is that of a female aged between 20 and 25 years, who would have stood between 5'2 and 5'3. He can't determine the cause of death, but there's no evidence of violent injury to the skeleton itself. Dental records in the presence of some distinctive jewelry confirm the identity of the body. This is Leah Stevens. Leah Stevens went missing three years earlier, in August 1989. She was picked up near the Karangahape Road red light district, and then she vanished. Police weren't able to solve Leah's disappearance back then, but when her skeleton is found, they pour resources back into the case. It soon stalls again. Three months after the body of Auckland prostitute
0: Leah Stevens was found in a pine forest at Muruwai, police have decided there's no point in continuing their search for her killer. Detective Senior Sergeant. For
1: Leah's family, there's some solace in finally having her body back. She's laid to rest at a funeral in Auckland, and a cross is put up at the spot in the forest where she was found. But Leah's family still want to know what happened to her. So do the police. The case remains open. But without any fresh leads, they stop actively investigating. Senior
0: Sergeant Burgess says some people in the sex industry have helped, but others haven't. But one thing's for sure, there are people who are keeping quiet about Leah's disappearance from Queen Street three
1: years ago. Then, six years later, the police receive a phone call that will change everything. The man on the end of the line, we're going to call him Neil, because he has permanent name suppression. He says he fears for his own safety. He says he's ready to talk to police about Leah. This phone call from Neil triggers a cascade of events. By the time it's all over, police will finally have a story to tell Leah's family about how she died. But they will also be forced to totally reconsider everything they thought they knew about the death of Dean Phyllis Sands.
0: Stuff and RNZ, this is Gone Fishing, a podcast by Amy Maas and me, Adam Dudding.
2: Leah, I remember Leah all right. She was murdered.
1: When Leah went missing in 1989, she'd been living with her grandmother, Isla Kirby, in Birkenhead on the North Shore. She'd been there about three months. They talked a lot. They used to watch a lot of TV together. Many years later, Isla would tell a high court in Auckland that her granddaughter was lovely. Leah had qualifications in typing and reception work. When she took the bus from Birkenhead to the city in the evenings, she'd tell her grandmother she was waitressing. If she was going to stay out all night, she'd always call and let Isla know. But really, Leah was working as a prostitute, sometimes as a stripper. She was also drinking a lot. On the night of Saturday, August 26, 1989, Leah headed for the bus around 8pm. She was in a good mood and wearing her white high heels. Isla said take care. That was the last time she saw her. These days, Isla lives in a retirement village, and Adam and I had planned to visit her there. The tape you'd just heard is from a very brief phone conversation where she told us she was very happy to talk. But then a manager at the retirement village vetoed our visit, saying she had a duty of care to protect Isla from us.
0: Sylvia. Yes. Sorry, we're later than we said. No, that's okay. We had a Google Maps adventure that took us in Instead, Amy and I visited Leah's mother, Sylvia Harada. In 1989, Leah was 20 and hadn't lived with her mother for some time. But as soon as Sylvia heard, she was missing.
2: We knew something bad must have happened to her because... If she'd just disappeared, she would have got in contact with one of us. I'm pretty sure of that. So we knew something bad must have happened to her.
0: Sylvia says as a child, Leah
2: was clever, good at English, arty. It was a shame that this happened to her, just in the prime of her life. Very friendly person. She had a beautiful face. She was pretty. She's very much like a father's side. Um, they were gypsy, gypsy and she had, she had that sort of look to her.
0: Sylvia says she hadn't known her daughter was a working girl or that she possibly had a drink problem.
2: Well, she wanted to be a model. She did apply for a few jobs. That's why I thought she moved to Auckland to my mother's. But I, I found out through the police that she was working on K Road, which was very disappointing. Because I didn't realise she, she would go there.
0: After Leah first disappeared, there wasn't much the police could tell the
2: family. And they got a um, what are those people called? Uh science, not scythe. CSI,
0: like the, the forensic people. Maybe?
2: Yeah, they got someone in, who told us where Leah's oh, body psychic. was. A psychic. Yes. Oh dear, they never get it right. Yeah, but, but they did, they had a rough idea that she was near a golf course and buried in the forest, and that was that was pretty true because that's where the, the the old couple found
0: her. A, eh? the discovery of Leah's body after three years was a relief of sorts. Sylvia went up
2: to Auckland and... Got her bones back and gave a proper burial. That, that was about all we, we could do. We were wondering about the way she died and everything else. We, we wanted to know the story of that. You
0: might be wondering why we're telling you so much about Leah Stevens.
1: Because till now, this has really been a story about the death of Dean Phyllis Sands and a story about Gail Maney's insistence that she had nothing to do with it. Yeah,
0: it'll become clear soon enough, but it is kind of complicated.
1: So we're going to step through it carefully. We also need to jump around a little in time. So if you were planning to concentrate during any one section of this story, that time has probably come. We'll start in April, 1998. This is the point where Gail Maney and Stephen Stone, along with Gail's little brother Colin and Mark Henriksen, have already been arrested. They've recently gone through a depositions hearing and are waiting for the High Court trial to begin. The case against them is built off the scenario you're familiar with. Gail got Stone to kill Dean in August 1989 because she thought he'd stolen her drugs. Stone and two other men then brought the body back to Larnock Road in the boot of a car. Gail calls this scenario one, and so do we. Remember, there are no forensics and no murder scene to support the police case. Dean's body hasn't been found. But the police have multiple witnesses who have agreed to stand in the witness box and back it up. Most notably Gail's old friend and flatmate, Tanya Wilson. But then there's that call we mentioned on a Friday afternoon in April 1998. It's made to the Police Communications Centre and is made by the guy who we are calling Neil. What you need to know if you want to understand what Neil's about to say is this. A couple of years earlier, back in 1996, police received a tip from someone else and they said Neil had been mouthing off about knowing who killed Leah Stevens. Police took ages to follow up that 1996 tip. By the time they finally knocked on Neil's door, it was early 1997. Over a couple of interviews, Neil admitted he'd known Leah. He was a DJ at Chaplin's, the club where she'd sometimes strip. They'd even slept together once. Neil talked about other people he'd met in that scene and said a club doorman, Stephen Stone, had boasted to him about being Leah's killer. But Neil was cagey about the details, and the interviews with him sort of fizzled out. Right, so roll forward again, to April 1998, where now it's Neil who's calling the cops. He's decided he wants to tell them more. When a constable at the communication centre picks up, Neil launches straight in. I need to talk to someone from the Leah Stevenson Quarry. Four, four cops came down to
3: to talk to me a while ago. Stone has seen me recently and knows where I live. I'm, I'm worried about it.
1: We'll hear quite a bit from Neil in this episode. So we've used an actor to read from the police and court transcripts.
3: Stone knows what I know. I wasn't worried before when I spoke with police because he didn't know where I was. I didn't tell the police everything when they interviewed me. Stone knows what I saw.
1: Neil sees he wants protection, but the constable asks him pretty bluntly why he deserves it.
3: I was there, man. I saw Leah get taken. I
1: was there. There are still several steps to come before the police will tie the Leah Stevens case and the Dean Fuller Sands case together in a tidy bow. But from the outset, there are a couple of important and obvious links. First, the person being pointed to as the alleged killer in each case is the same guy, Stephen Stone. And secondly, there's the timing. Dean Fuller Sands went missing on Monday, the 21st of August, 1989. Leah went missing on Saturday the 26th of August, 1989. That's just five days later. Such close timing could mean nothing. But it could mean everything. Either way, the police pursuing the cases are very well aware of the parallels. As Neil starts talking in more detail, the two separate investigations become one. It's called Operation Charlie. As Neil said on the phone... The reason he's ready to talk now is that he's just had the terrifying experience of bumping into Stephen Stone. By total chance, the two of them had appointments on the same day at the same periodic detention centre in New Lynn.
3: I walked in there and I sat down. um, Well, actually happened to sit down right next to Stone. But I didn't recognise him off straight away and he didn't recognise me
1: but a little later, Stone starts giving Neil the evils. He thinks Stone has recognized him, so he makes a swift exit through a back door. He's scared.
3: He, he still um, gives me the shits after all these years.
1: Now, motivated by that fear, He wants to tell the whole story. He tells police he was there when Stone killed Leah. He saw it happen. And if the police agree to look after him, he'll name names and show the exact locations where everything went down on the last night of Leah's life. OK, say the police, let's hear what you've got. What Neil tells them next kind of reads like a work of fiction.
0: When Amy asked me if I wanted to join her in reporting this story... I wasn't sure at first.
1: Yeah, it took a little bit of work.
0: Well, it seemed kind of complicated, and it, it all happened a long time ago. Also, by inclination, I'm someone who tends to presume that police and courts mostly get things right. If a bunch of people are found guilty of a murder, they most likely did it, right?
1: Yeah, but then I showed you the documents.
0: Yeah, and it, it was a stack, thousands of pages high. And from that stack, Amy pulled out a few hundred pages she thought I might find particularly interesting. And that was the transcripts of Neil's interviews and statements. And they were kind of amazing, because even if you know nothing about the case, when you read these transcripts, it's obvious that Neil is a first-class, maybe compulsive liar. Neil talks to police again and again. They drive him around Auckland, and he points to the places where people he knew lived and worked or died back in 1989. So there's informal chit-chat noted in police job sheets, and there are formal interviews. If you include the two early statements that Neil made before he called back police in a panic, he makes ten different statements about what happened to Leah Stevens. And in every statement, he tells a significantly different story. These are long interviews. They contain a crazy level of detail. Neil is asked about the underwear people were wearing nine years ago, what cars they drove and who sat where in the back seat. He talks about the layout of furniture and rooms, the the music he played when DJing at the strip club, who he slept with, who everyone else slept with. He recalls detailed conversations. His memory seems phenomenal. Or maybe maybe it's his imagination that's phenomenal because again and again his interviewers catch him in a lie and then he gives another story. So the question in my mind as I ploughed through the transcripts was this. If Neil lies all the time, how do we know that statement number 10... The one that police finally think is good enough to hand over to prosecution lawyers, is true. It's a question we'll come back to, but for now, let's look at what he says in some of those transcripts. Neil knew Leah and Stone because for six months in 1989, he was a part-time DJ at Chaplin's, a strip club in Karangahapi Road, or K Road, as everyone calls it. Neil was also a student at Carrington Polytech at the time, but he doesn't seem to have been especially focused on his studies. Neil was 18, and he enjoyed the whole scene. He slept with as many of the strippers as he could, including Leah once. Most evenings, after his shifts at Chaplin's, he'd move on to socialise at other nightclubs and strip joints. Sunset Strip, Megadrome, Pink Pussycat, Las Vegas, Reflections. Neil says he first met Leah just three weeks before she disappeared. She actually only stripped at Chaplin's a few times, but she still made the effort to dream up a stage name. She was Zara. It kind of fitted with her colleagues' names. There was a Dallas, a Tiffany, a Cindy, a Sapphire. Stephen Stone was a regular customer, an occasional doorman at Chaplin's. He was a thug. It was widely rumoured that he carried a gun and that he always had a flick knife to hand. Neil says he did some burglaries with Stone and also delivered drugs for him. This was mostly cannabis, but sometimes LSD, speed, cocaine, crack. Neil would carry the drugs around in a particular briefcase. So, Neil, Leah and Stone all knew each other through chaplains and they also socialised together to some extent. In his earlier 1997 statements to police, Neil claims that on the night Leah disappeared, August 26, 1989, he'd planned to meet up with her after work, along with two other people, Stephen Stone and another chaplain's regular, who, confusingly, is also called Steve. To make things easier, Neil sometimes calls this guy Steve number 2, and we will do the same. But anyway, that intended meet-up doesn't happen.
3: None of them turned up.
0: Neil tells police he never saw Leah again after that. He also claims that a few weeks later, Stone dropped by his home and confessed to murder.
3: We got talking about the girls at the club, and it was then that he asked me if I knew that he'd killed Leah. I, I said that I had a feeling about it. It's quite the friendly chat. As he left, he said to me, it was along the lines of, if you narc on me, I'll cut your throat, just like Leah's.
0: Those quotes are from Neil's first two interviews in 1997. In the 1998 interviews, he's going to go much further with an eyewitness account of Leah's death. But before getting to that night, Neil gives the police some context and some hints at Stone's motive. He talks about something that happens five days before Leah dies, in other words, August the 21st, 1989. He's at home in Grafton in central Auckland.
3: I was with Leah that afternoon, um, and, and I got a phone call from Stone to meet him later on that night.
0: Stone orders him to collect his briefcase and meet him at midnight in a car park in Massey, West Auckland. Just off Buck Road, actually. Neil does what he's told and makes the midnight rendezvous. Leah rides with him.
3: There's no particular reason. I just told her to come along for a ride. It wasn't supposed to be anything unusual.
0: But this isn't just a drug deal. Stone arrives in a car with two other guys and tells Neil to follow him. They drive in convoy, north through Kumiyu and then out towards the golf course at Murawai, then finally down a dirt road. They park up and...
3: Stone came to me and said, we've got a little job to do. And I had no idea at that time what the job was. I was expecting to go off to a house to drop off drugs. And then Stone opens the boot of his car.
0: Inside, there's a body. It's a man. It looks to Neil like he's been shot. He doesn't
3: recognise him. Stone said, we've got to take the body out to the, um, to, to the forest, out to, out to the bush. Neil is totally freaked out. I was just shitting myself, and I was just going, fuck, 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 this is not good. And the other guys weren't saying a hell of a lot either.
0: They walk into the bush. The two other men dig a shallow grave. Neil recognises one of the diggers as someone he's seen before at Chaplin's. The body is tipped in, face down, Neil says, in one of his typical flourishes of detail, and covered in dirt. And then...
3: Stone sort of have a bit of a laugh to himself, and he says, "Heh, sweet. Job is done. We're out of here. Stone was talking about some drugs being ripped off and said something about nobody rips stone off, you know. Nobody rips me off, you know.
0: Leah has stayed in the car while the men are burying the body. When Neil gets back to her,
3: she she was upset and crying and she said, "Why the fuck did you bring me here?" I said, "I don't I, I wasn't expecting this, you know."
0: Everyone gets back in their cars. Stone gives Neil instructions on where to drop off the drugs. Neil makes the delivery, then takes Leah back to the city. He drops her in K Road. Outside Decker, he thinks. Decker's long gone now, but if you know K Road, that's where Iron Bank is now, that giant rust-coloured building near the Queen Street Junction. Anyway, Neil then dumps his car in the Auckland Domain, the car's hot after all, and heads home.
3: And I walked to Grafton, where we live was not far from the Domain, and we, we, we dumped a few cars there before. That's on the Monday. Over the next few days, Neil sees both
0: Stone and Leah at Chaplin's, but no-one talks about what happened out at Muriwai. And then it's Saturday, August the 26th, 1989. Neil's wrapping up his shift at Chaplin's. He's seen Leah earlier in the evening. She came up to the DJ booth to give him some songs she wanted to strip to, but she's gone now. Stone arrives and tells Neil he needs to come with him to do a job. Neil again presumes this means a drug deal, so he grabs his little briefcase and heads out to Stone's car on K Road. Once they're in the car, though...
3: We went down and around onto Queen Street and he said, we're going to pick up Leah. She was across at Reflections. Reflections is a nightclub. Stone invites Leah to get in. He called her over and she got into the
0: car. She was looking a bit worried, you know. As soon as Leah gets in the back, Stone turns and starts yelling at
3: her. You know, he was going, you've seen the body and the bloody drugs and all this sort of carry-on. And, and I just sat in there and at that stage I thought, fuck, this is just going to get worse. You know, Stone was getting real aggro. Leah isn't saying much. She was frightened. She was looking shit-scared.
0: Things start to move fast. Stone drives down Queen Street, takes the first right
3: onto City Road, then turns into Liverpool Street where there's a car park and Stone stopped the car and turned it off and I'm just sitting there going, go fuck, what's going on here? And he just had another go at Leah. He was saying she was gonna talk. She's, you know, you're gonna fucking talk you bitch, you know, fuck you, you know, just get aggro with her. Stone is working himself up into a rage. He got out of the car, just opened the back door and dragged her out and that's when he stabbed her. I don't know whether, I think he, I think he had a knife down down here or, or, or something.
0: By the time Neil gets out of the car, Leah is on the ground. Stone has stabbed her in the stomach.
3: She was lying down, and I think he was holding her down, but she was going just this. I think she was trying to scream or something, but she wasn't making a lot of noise. And then? When I got around the back of the car, he sort of, with the knife, sort of... Cut her throat, basically.
0: Neil does nothing to stop Stone.
3: And I'm just standing around going, fuck, this is twice in one week. I'm not having a good week. He liked to run, but I'm shit scared. Stone had the gun with him, he could have just turned around and shot me. Fuck, you know, I'm still to this day terrified of that prick. Stone's still in a fury. He was going he was just walking around the back of the car in a temper. Then he just said pick her up. He just points to her, he said, pick her up and he opened he, he opened the boot. I grabbed the bottom half and put her in the car, and he grabbed the top half. There was there was some blood on me, not a lot. For some reason Stone removes all of Leah's clothes once she's in the boot. Neil doesn't know why. He was going psycho. He'd lost it. Completely lost it. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I didn't make a run for it.
0: Leah isn't moving and she isn't making any sound. But for some reason... I
3: still got the impression that she wasn't dead.
0: They get back in the car and make the short drive to a house in Buchanan Street in Kingsland. There, Stone and Neil wash off the blood. Stone chats to some people who are in the lounge drinking and smoking dope. Then the two of them drive out to Muriwai with Leah in the boot. Stone and Neil carry Leah's body a little way into the bush and drop her on the ground, unburied. They get back in the car, deliver some drugs somewhere, and drive back to the city and go to a nightclub where Neil drinks until he is very, very drunk.
1: That's the version Neil tells police on April the 24th, 1998. But a few interviews later, on May 13th, Neil has a dramatically different account.
0: Remember the chaplain's regular who Neil called Steve Number Two? Well, now it seems that when Neil and Leah made their midnight rendezvous with Stone on Monday night with the briefcase, Steve Number 2 is in the car with them. So he sees the body in a boot just like them and is involved in the burial in Mooriwai Forest. And Steve Number 2 is also in the car when Stone picks up Leah from Queen Street the following Saturday and kills her. Neil gives a statement that tells the whole horrible story again. Just like last time, Stone calls Leah over to the car, yells accusations at her in the back seat and stabs her to death in the Liverpool street car park. In this version, all three men put her in the boot, drive to the Buchanan Street address to clean up, say hi to the dope smokers in the lounge, then take Leah's body out to Muriwai. And in the forest, according to Neil, things get really hairy. Steve number two freaks out as they're carrying Leah into the bush.
3: He dropped the shovel and he said, no, I can't do this. He said, no fucking way. That's when we dropped Leah. just dropped on the ground. Next minute, Steve No. 2 is doing a runner through the trees. Stone said, grab the shovel, we're going to get the prick. And that's when Steve, um, Stone, Stone, pulled out the gun that he had in his holster and started chasing after Steve. And I picked up the shovel and started running after them. After some bumbling
0: through the undergrowth, Stone shoots Steve No. 2 and he falls. Neil hits the downed man on the head with a shovel.
3: I just sort of went, my arm wasn't up, it sort of, it sort of swing like that and just hit him on the head because he was screaming and yelling, Don't shoot, don't kill me.
0: At this point, the police interviewer asks Neil what he was hoping to achieve by hitting a badly wounded
3: man with a shovel. Shut him up, I guess. I've been in fights with other people. It's just when you're in a fight with other people and you tell people how to fight, you and me, you know, one of the, you usually get in and put a boot in as well. I've done that. Anyway, Stone shoots Steve number two a few more times.
0: He dies and Neil buries him.
1: This statement, which is Neil's 7th, is made on the 18th of May 1998. But Statement 8, which comes along the very next day, has some brand new variants.
0: In this version, Steve No. 2 is still there to witness Monday's burial of a stranger out at Muriwai. And once again, he's in the car on Saturday when Stone picks up Leah outside Reflections. But from there, things go rather differently. In the Liverpool Street car park, Stone doesn't stab Leah. Instead, he, Neil and Steve Number 2 punch and kick her. And then Stone... Got some tape
3: out and um, I was just sort of holding her arms. And he taped up her hands and he taped up her legs, put some tape around her mouth.
0: They drive to the usual house in Buchanan Street, Kingsland, but this time Leah is still alive. She remains in the boot, taped up. The men pop in to socialise with the dope smokers and then after 20 minutes or so, it's off to Muriwai. There, the men drag Leah from the boot and Stone orders the other two to help him tear off her clothes.
3: Stone said to us when we were taking her out, we're going to rape this bitch, fix her up good. So I just went along with it. That's, That's what he told us to do. And then we started dragging her off into the trees. Stone orders Neil to rape
0: Leah, so he does. Then Stone rapes her. And then Steve number two does a runner, just like in the previous statement.
3: I said, look, he's making a run, he's running off, you know, and, and Stone got off. He pulled his pants back up and he said, fuck, grab that shovel and we go after him and fix that as well.
0: As before, Stone shoots Steve number two, Neil hits him with the shovel, Stone shoots him again, and then they bury him. They head back through the bush looking for Leah. She's still lying on the ground where she was raped.
1: Curiously, given how much of the story has changed, the moment of Leah's death is quite consistent with Neil's earlier accounts. Stone pulls out a knife, stabs her in the stomach, and then cuts her throat. They leave her where she is. Stone and Neil collect Leah's clothes and the tape that had been used to bind and gag her.
3: We put the shovel in the car and the boot, and the clothes were put in the boot, and we drove back to town. We're almost there with Neil's kaleidoscopic statements,
0: but there are still a few big changes to come. most dramatic, and this would almost be funny if the circumstances weren't so appalling, is the fate of Steve No. 2. Early on, Neil gives police some details about Steve No. 2, his height, his build, his age, the addresses of some places we worked in 1989. And even while Neil is painting dramatic scenes of this third murder, police go back and look through the old Leah Stevens investigation files. There, they find someone who perfectly matches Neil's description of Steve No. 2 they make some calls, and what they learn punches a giant hole in Neil's account. Firstly, the man's name isn't Steve, and to this day it remains a total mystery why Neil made such a stupid choice of fake name. We can't actually tell you the real name because it's permanently suppressed, but for convenience, we're going to call this guy Martin from now on. So got that? Steve number two is now Martin. But secondly, and more importantly, Martin isn't dead.
1: On the morning of May the 20th, Detective Ken Danby interviews Neil again. They're working towards what will become statement number nine. Yesterday's story isn't the truth yet, is it? Says Danby. That's what happened, says Neil. Then can you explain how Steve, who was killed in the forest, is alive and well and talking to us last night? Neil folds immediately. Look, he says, what I said was all made up.
0: Neil starts again. Statement number nine contains echoes of his earlier versions, but much has changed, and not just the resurrection of Steve II, a.k.a. Martin. Neil now says that when he drives out to West Auckland on the Monday night to meet Stone, Martin is with him in the car, but Leah isn't. In other words, in this version, Leah never sees a body in the boot, which means Stone's quite plausible motive for killing Leah, so she doesn't knock about the body, no longer exists. Luckily, Neil has another motive ready. He says he'd skimmed some of Stone's drugs from the briefcase, and when Stone asked him about a missing kilo of cannabis, Neil said he'd seen Leah stealing it. Stone is enraged. So here's how the ninth version of Saturday Night plays out. Stone summons Neil and Martin to get in the car with them. Then they pick up Leah from outside reflections. Stone starts ranting at Leah, but the subject has shifted in line with the new motive.
3: Stone turned around and had a bit of a go at her about stealing drugs and he said, Neil said you stole some drugs. He said he saw you taking some drugs and I said, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, and and Leah just said, no, 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 fuck off, what the fuck are you talking about? It wasn't me. Um, he said, yeah, it was.
0: Stone turns onto City Road, the usual story, but he doesn't pull into the Liverpool street car park. That location has entirely disappeared from the narrative.
3: No, we just drove straight up City Road and round... Um, We got out to the place in Kingsland. When they arrive
0: at Buchanan Street this time, Leah isn't dead. She isn't bound with tape inside the boot. She's alive and well. The four of them head into the house together.
3: We just sat down. The, 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 The people that were already there, there was drugs, marijuana being rolled up, and there's a few drinks, you know, and stuff like that. And from what I remember, Leah had a drink, and she may have been smoking some dope, but I'm not too sure about that. But after a while, says Neil. Stone got up and he picked up Leah by the, you know, took her by the arm and said, come on, let's go in the back. And we, and Stone said to me and Martin, come on, you guys, we're going in the back. And um, the four of us went into a room out the back, behind the lounge somewhere.
0: And in this version, it's only here, in the bedroom of a flat in Kingsland, with a small party going on in the lounge, that Stone finally attacks Leah When he throws her on the bed, Neil isn't too worried at first.
3: Stone was going to give her a hiding for stealing the drugs and I, fuck, okay, I wasn't too worried about that. At the time I thought, well, to be perfectly honest, I thought, better her than me, you know, I was looking after myself. I thought, you know, if she gets the hiding, so, you know, it's better than me getting one. It
0: doesn't stop at a hiding. Stone punches Leah. Her clothes are torn off. Stone holds down her arms and tells Neil to rape her, and Neil does. Then Stone rapes her, strangling her at the same time. Then Stone tells Martin to rape her, and Martin takes his pants down and lies on top of her, but his heart doesn't seem to be in it. And then Stone pulls out a hunting knife. He stabs Leah in the stomach a couple of times, and then he grabs the back of her head and cuts her throat. Neither Neil nor Martin make any attempt to stop him.
3: Stone got off the bed and said, that will sort the bitch out, ha ha, fuck you. He was angry and and, and aggro, but he was getting more happy, like he was pleased with
0: it. Stone tells the two men to get rid of the body and they dump Leah, without Stone's help, in the muriwai bush. Back in Kingsland, they burn her clothes in a 44-gallon drum.
1: That's Neil's ninth statement. He makes one more a couple of months later. Police have tracked down Martin and he gives seven or so statements of his own. It depends on how you count them. But as you go through these transcripts, first Neil's, then Martin's, they get harder and harder to read. In a sense, Leah dies 17 times, in four different places, but each time, this horror story ends the same way. Police push the two men for endless details. Some of that might be to test their stories, but other times, it's hard to know if what they're asking is entirely necessary. The order in which Leah's clothes are torn off, the colour of her underwear, the sound she made as she died, the size of the knife, where the blood went, the size of Stone's penis, which men actually penetrated her, which men orgasmed. Again and again, whether it's because Neil or Martin get caught in a lie, or they're asked to clarify something, or there's a clash between their accounts and the police want to hear a new version... The whole awful tale has to be told again, from beginning to bitter end. Martin is living overseas, so police pay for his flight to New Zealand. In a phone call before he sets off, Martin says he's willing to tell them everything, 100%. But he wants immunity from prosecution The officer on the line, Detective Sergeant Gary Davey, says police don't have the power to guarantee that, but they can make an application to the Solicitor-General, as long as Martin is completely truthful. Just before they hang up, Davey has a question, Martin, do you know the name Dean Fuller Sands? No, says Martin, it doesn't sound familiar. Two days after Neil gives that ninth statement, Martin arrives in Auckland. He's interviewed that evening at Henderson Police Station, where the police give him coffee with three sugars. The interview is mostly about Martin's connections with Stone and about Leah. But David does ask him, What can you tell me about the death of Dean the Sands? And Martin replies, Nothing. Am I meant to know this guy? Over the next few days, Martin is driven around by police and interviewed repeatedly. He points out the place on K Road where chaplains used to be, reflections at the top of Queen Street, a house in Buchanan Street, a dirt road in Muriwai. He takes police to places where he did some burglaries with Stone and Neil, and also to a house in Larnock Road, where he says some of the stolen gear was stored. Twice, when he seems to be holding back... Police play him sections of the video of Neil's ninth statement. Neil clearly places Martin in the room when Leah Stevens dies at Buchanan Street. At times, Martin's version matches Neil's, but often it doesn't. And just like Neil, Martin keeps changing his story with each new statement. Mostly, though, his changes of direction aren't as dramatic as Neil's. He doesn't seem to take the same pleasure in inventing melodramatic scenes complete with imagined dialogue, but he still lies. For a long while, he denies having seen Leah die, and then he says he did. He agrees she dies in a bedroom, but twice changes his mind about the address. He says Leah's body was dumped at Piha, but later says it was Muriwai. But the really important variation in Martin's story comes on a Sunday afternoon, two days after his return to Auckland. By now, Martin has already told police a lot about Leah's death, but he hasn't had anything to say about what happened earlier that week, and Niels claimed that they both buried a man's body. That Sunday, May the 24th, 1998, just before noon, Detective Sergeant Gary Davey picks Martin up from his parents' house. They head to Henderson Police Station and he takes Martin to the lounge. Davy reads Martin his rights as usual and asks him to read through the earlier notes and statements so he can make any comments or corrections. Another officer, Detective Danby, is also present. The sequence of what happens next is important, so we've got an actor to read it directly from Davy's job sheet from the day.
2: 12.50.
3: Detective Danby and I leave the room. Brief Detective Senior Sergeant Franklin. 1300. Detective Senior Sergeant Franklin speaks to Martin alone. 1330. Detective Danby and I re-enter the lounge. Take photographs in on direction of Detective Senior Sergeant Franklin. Martin immediately identified Dean Fuller-Sands' photograph from the set.
1: Get that? Half an hour when Mark Franklin is talking to Martin, alone in a room with no video running. Later on, this undocumented half-hour will become very important. During the trial, Franklin will be aggressively cross-examined about what went on between him and Martin. He'll be accused of having fed Martin information to match a predetermined police theory. He'll be accused of having threatened Martin. And naturally enough, we've also asked Franklin what went on in that room. Because after that half-hour conversation is over, Martin is ready to give a news statement. Contrary to everything he said up till this point, he now suddenly says he knew Dean Fuller Sands. In fact, he knew him pretty well. He says he's ready to tell police exactly how and where Dean Fuller Sands died. He's ready to confess that he was right there when it happened. And he says he even knows the names of some of the eight people who stood there and watched it happen. He says one of them was Gail Maney.
0: Next time on Gone Fishing...
1: I held the gun in my hand, I, I
3: pointed it at Dean and I hesitated.
1: These two guys, they're going to
0: say whatever because they've got a purpose to serve. They're going to, they going to—they want to get off with this murder conviction.
3: We want the truth. If there's allegations that I pressured him or thumped him or did something that was not correct, there's no point in me doing that because it jeopardises one of my key witnesses.
0: John fishing is a joint production from Stuff and RNZ, written, presented and produced by Amy Maas and me, Adam Dudding. Our executive producers are Tim Watkin and Justin Gregory for RNZ and Catherine Goldsworthy for Stuff. This episode was engineered by Rangi Poet, visuals by Jason Dorday. You can subscribe to the full eight-part series at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and other podcast providers. You can also go to the Stuff or RNZ homepages to listen or to find details
3: on how to subscribe.